In this talk, I'm hoping to consider the 21st century cultural, political and moral legacy of Nelson Mandela, that towering figure who straddles the 20th century, first president of democratic South Africa, who, had he lived, as Richard Evans was just saying, would have celebrated his centenary this year. Mandela's was famously a world life, a global life, that is, he was a determinedly national leader whose vision and influence also had global dimensions. His biography, which I'm sure many of you know or have heard of, Long Walk to Freedom, traces one of the most resonant political stories of the past century, of patient onward progression towards justice and democracy. And his example of moral courage, forgiveness and political willpower has served as a model for many leaders around the world. It is this question of continuing leadership and of lasting example, national and global example, on into the 21st century in which he died in 2013 that I want to explore this evening. In what ways does the story of this passionately nationalist leader who identified himself completely with his country and his people also appeal on the world stage. And as importantly, how might that story go on speaking to the needs, hopes and dreams of our globalised 21st century? And it's that question that it would be great to explore in the, in the question and answer that um, I hope we might have towards the end of our time. As this implies, my talk will involve considering what it might be to be a world figure, world-recognized, world-renowned, world-influencing. In these respects, all these respects, Mandela certainly did have a worldly and global stature. He became a global symbol of democracy and reconciliation. As some of these images may remind us, he was an acclaimed moral as well as political hero. He lived a life recognized as being significant right around the world, in different political spheres. Aspects of his achievement, the struggle for justice, the fight against apartheid, resonated with people across many cultures, not only in other societies experiencing racism and ethnic oppression, but also in countries relegated to a minority status of one kind or another, across what is now called the Global South. <coughs> And his story of overcoming the bitterness of 27 and a half years of political imprisonment was consolidated with the award, the award of a, of a global prize, the Nobel Prize, in 1993, along with his, his partner in politics for a period of time, F.W. de Klerk. Around 2005 or so, it was said of his face that it was as recognisable in countries as it was recognisable in countries as far apart as China and Chile as the McDonald's Golden Arches. <laughs> when his statue was unveiled in Westminster in 2006, he was hailed as President of the World in the eulogy that was spoken on that occasion. Moreover, a happy accident for the life that is Mandela's, the global life, the later chapters of his story to some extent unfolded in tandem with processes of intensifying globalization, as the critic Erica Lombard has written in her account of Long Walk to Freedom. 
Therefore, the Mandela we now know is in many ways the successful creation of international communications and media technology, including the many films and videos that have been produced about him. Goodbye Bafana, Invictus, and the biopic Long Walk to Freedom itself. As this suggests, having a world life or bearing a world life is not just a matter of historical or symbolic significance or stature, it is also a function of marketing and publicity, and Mandela was certainly a past master at projecting his own image. In this work of projection, the Nelson Mandela Foundation and other trusts and charities that carry his name and promote his legacy has been crucial. In the later years of his life, the Nelson Mandela Foundation worked hard to make sure that there were publications in the pipeline about Mandela almost every year. Publications in many media had steered a fine line, a very delicate line, between hagiography, which it was felt Mandela hardly needed, worshipful biography, and independent warts and all biography. The latest publication authorized by the Nelson Mandela Foundation, Dare Not Linger, that some of you may have received in your Christmas stockings last Christmas, I don't know, I certainly did, Dare Not Linger 2017, the so-called sequel to Long Walk to Freedom, is typical in this sense and steering that fine line. Based on, on 10 chapters written by Mandela himself about his presidential years, it has been rounded out by the novelist Mandla Langa, and the result is a respectful, respectable, but largely unrevealing account, some might say a very flat biography, certainly more political than personal. We could also say that of Long Walk to Freedom. However, when we refer to either national or global representations of Mandela, we are, of course, referring to a period now over 10 years ago, when he was still alive and even quite active, when his influence and his reputation still radiated. The question for us today, as we approach what would have been his 100th birthday, is to consider whether and how his one-time megawatt image continues to have luminosity today. In what ways might his worldwide influence continue through the decades to come in this age of Putin and Trump? neither of whom have ever, to my knowledge, explicitly referred to Mandela in political speeches, unlike, say, Barack Obama or Gordon Brown. So this is a very interesting question. You know, to what extent has his reputation um, borne the brunt of the times that we live in? Is it affected by that? And I would say inevitably so. These, these two men referred to each other, especially um, Obama, to, to Mandela in, in a number of speeches. With the political landscape changing as rapidly as it is, can we continue to speak of Mandela as that president of the world as he was hailed outside Westminster? Or is he a past president now, past his media sell-by date? He was never on social media, unlike the current president of the United States, and he did not tweet. All of his friends from Fidel Castro through Gaddafi to Barack Obama and Bill Clinton are no longer in power or indeed no longer alive. The ANC under Cyril Ramaphosa, who not long ago succeeded the unillustrious Jacob Zuma, is a very different political party than when Nelson Mandela was president. 
In fact, from the vantage point of 2018, Mandela to some degree looks like a figure from another era. My core question, though, concerns world stature and continuing political legacy, the same sort of questions we might ask of Winston Churchill, for example. And in this respect, there's probably no more suitable vehicle or subject than Mandela with which to pose that question. What does, what, what does it mean to bear world stature, to have continuing political legacy as a leader? To assume global status as a politician, as well as Mandela, we might think here of Obama, of Churchill, till very recently of Aung San Suu Kyi, to assume global or world status appears to require longevity, often membership of a dynasty or elite, and a powerful support team. I already made reference to the Nelson Mandela Foundation. Mandela, as we can immediately see, ticks all these boxes, and I'll say a bit more about lineage in, in a moment. In Walt Whitman's wor words, he contained, or in any case appeared to contain, multitudes. He was complicated, well-connected, and charismatic. In his time commanding respect and adulation, simultaneously in the Western world and in the global South, or former Third World, not an easy feat. But he was also contradictory, enigmatic, and often inscrutable and inflexible as a political leader. Yet these too may be qualities that go into the making of a global leader, though they may not guarantee lasting influence. On the contrary, as I will suggest towards the end. <clears throat> the short thematic biography that I published on Mandela some years ago in 2008, at the time of his 90th birthday, posed at its opening the intentionally provocative question, who or what is Nelson Mandela? It then set out to consider the many personae that constituted the charisma of this remarkable man, an exercise that soon began to show that Mandela's achievements were at times under-recognized even in his lifetime because he appeared in that contradictory light. To some, he was perceived or seemed to come across as a self-styled Edwardian gentleman and an Anglophile, a great admirer of the Westminster system. Yet he was also a fierce African nationalist and, in his time, a political radical. So there's one contradiction. He was a Democrat and a freedom fighter, yet his political style was autocratic. He, in his own words, liked to lead from the front, like the shepherd boy he had been as a youth. Among supporters, he was sometimes regarded as a good rhetorician, yet he was also notorious for his often wooden manner of delivery. There's another contradiction. He was a man of substance, yet in love with media frippery and glamour, addicted to the buzz generated by his own fame. Zelda Lagrange, his longtime assistant, gives many examples of this in her respectful and loving book, Good Morning, Mr. Mandela. And here are just some images of Mandela uh, projecting um, his, if you like, this word my students like, iconicity, projecting his image and showing great facility in doing so. Zelda Lagrange, though, is very revealing in talking about how um, 
Mandela became hooked, if you like, almost addicted to the adulation he received from crowds and would, um, to the frustration of his security detail, like to go out into a shopping mall, for example, to meet the public, to, to, to feel their love. In terms of style and image, he appeared, therefore, to send out mixed messages. Yet also, as a political leader, he often acted in inconsistent ways. In part, these mixed perceptions rise from his longevity, and the fact that he underwent several political changes of heart across his extended career, in particular from passive resistance to armed struggle in the 1950s, which is well charted in the film, the biopic Long Walk to Freedom, and from supporting revolution to advocating reconciliation in the 1980s. Also, a well-known shift in Mandela's case. Moreover, Though his achievements as a leader rested on qualities of character and a fine talent for negotiation and arbitration, these features were combined with and calibrated by his people skills, his ability to find and draw around him outstanding, always male, collaborators and friends, themselves astute political minds, particularly Oliver Tambo, Walter Sisulu and Ahmed Kathrada. And I'll come back to to talking about his friendship, his qualities of friendship, of building solid networks in a while. Weighing these seeming contradictions and contrasts, my sense is that the multiple, sometimes conflicting facets to Mandela's character and achievements are reconciled in his nationalism. And so, in fact, his nationalism contributed to his stature as a world leader and to his global reputation. Crudely put, there was something in Mandela's national example and leadership that could appeal to many people, many publics, South African, but also American, Cuban, British, old, young, black, white, male, female. Indeed, Mandela was well known and sometimes criticized in his lifetime for trying to be all things to all people. On the campaign trail, he dressed to appeal to audiences he was about to meet to put them at their ease. And this is captured on this slide where you see him in a range of different costumes, if you like. He artfully combined freedom fighter celebrity with middle class respectability. For example, drinking tea with Betsy Favut, the widow of Hendrik Favut, in a sober suit. But then on the same day on the campaign trail, donning an open-necked shirt to meet with a group of young voters. For him, the most significant political moments were to be captured in some appropriate costume, to the extent that in certain instances, as famously in his wearing the traditional and at the time vilified green and gold Springbok rugby shirt and cap at South Africa's 1995 World Cup victory, as it turned in, as it became a victory, the costume at once consecrated and memorialized the moment. And of course, the, the movie Invictus and the book on which it is based suggests that had Mandela not got on board in that way, the victory would not, might not have been a victory. We might observe how in all these examples, Mandela is most consistent when appealing to core national value, values, yet in so doing is seen as the more admirable, the more trustworthy in the eyes of the world. The global stature rests on the national. And his chameleon qualities, 
laced as they are with his nationalism, during his presidential years largely enhanced rather than detracted from his global influence and reputation. Paradoxically, however, I keep turning around this paradox of his contradictions in this talk. Some of the core ingredients of his global stature have, as our new century has progressed, contributed to compromising Mandela's status as a world figure, or may make it difficult for us to make claims for his lasting, with emphasis on lasting, world renown and global influence. Perhaps not so much now, in the 20-teens, as into the future. The first aspect relates, paradoxically, as I said, to his nationalism, or more accurately, his nation-centeredness. The second relates to his failures or partial failures as a leader and the ways in which these have been represented and interpreted, and interpreted in South Africa since his death. In short, can we claim global influence from Mandela when, in the country with which he is so closely associated, he is now often discredited for a host of reasons, for having pressed for reconciliation instead of justice, especially economic justice, in the interests of saving the nation, for having made compromises with neoliberal big business, for having tacitly participated in AIDS denialism until his own son died of the illness, in short, for having supported, in effect, the wrong kind of nation, a, rage, a rainbow nation rather than an irredeemably racialized one. In South Africa today, writes the journalist and academic Hedley Twidel, the Mandela years are not only perceived as a, as a closed-off era, as last century, as in it is so last century, but his de-racialization project is also increasingly dismissed as a folly and a dream, and the negotiated settlement as a delusion. Even Mandela's undying devotion to his beloved African National Congress across his lifetime, despite his awareness of growing corruption and cronyism, now speaks to many of something inward-facing and deeply conservative. Indeed, we may now be seeing a situation develop in respect of Mandela where his reputation, though initially built on a nationalist platform, as I've suggested, might now in fact be supported and sustained by his international reputation in some quarters for non-racial leadership, even as he is discredited in some circles for those same qualities at home. But now I want to pause for a moment and make a short detour to remind us of some of the key pillars of Mandela's stature and character to assess his global as against his national reputation. I would like to touch on three main areas. Um, I'll come back to that in a moment. I would, I'd like to touch on these three main areas, lineage and networks, metropolitan status, and political vision. And in outlining these, I will also, as you'll soon see, give something of a very potted biography of Mandela as I go. So first, lineage and networks. As is now quite well known, Mandela's status was to some extent inherited. He was brought up in a relatively sheltered rural environment of well-off peasant farmers in the one-time Corsa homeland of Transkei in the 1920s and 30s 
and at a young age moved across to live with a relative who, importantly, was a member of the local aristocracy. This was the keystone on which his innate and infectious confidence in himself rested. For Mandela, in the context of apartheid, a sense of entitlement and self-possession drawn down from his Tembu lineage was something he could take for granted. Therefore, and this is important, he did not feel or rarely felt that sense of internal inadequacy that Franz Fanon diagnosed as the dehumanizing syndrome of the colonized, or as he wrote, the black man, in his famous work, an analysis of oppressed consciousness, black skin, white masks. For Mandela in his homeland of Transkei, growing up in his guardian, Chief Jokintaba's courtyard, black institutions of authority operated with success despite colonialism and in spite of apartheid. So he was effectively a member of not one but two overlapping elites, his Tembu extended family, but also the African middle class elite fostered by the mission schools. He received, in the context of his time, an elite education and was one of only a handful of black students to progress to tertiary education in this period, the 1930s. So Mandela learned to use his inner sense of self-assurance, we might even say aristocratic self-assurance, in an instrumental way, building on the confidence his background gave him in order to project a broader cultural and political self-assurance for his own people and his country into the future. There were very, very few in South Africa at the time, whether in the 1940s or 50s, who concretely believed, as Mandela so palpably did, that South Africa belonged to all who lived in it, black and white. And I'm quoting there from one of his famous speeches. And Walter Sisulu, it's important to say, was, was, was part of, it was trusted by Mandela, there was a lot of mutual trust between them because he formed part of those same extended mission-educated networks. Metropolitan status, back to that image. And I'll, I'll put Barack Obama in there again too, because the fact of Mande Mandela's, what I'm calling, the fact of him having this, this metropolitan impact and gravitas drew world leaders to him um, and... Uh, built relationships, relationships of trust with them. In 1941, Mandela moved to Johannesburg to study law and by the late 1940s had become involved in ANC youth politics and then in 1950, the 1950s, the Defiance Campaign, all the while conducting himself, in the words of a comrade, Raymond Mklaber, in such a way as to attain the status of leader. So he was building his leadership qualities in this, he shares some similarities with another 1990s highly mediatized figure, you'll forgive the comparison, David Beckham, who Alex Ferguson in 2016 in fact criticized for having actively sought fame. Mandela, very similar, in the 1940s and 50s, actively sought fame. Already in his 20s, Mandela would seem to have intuited that status was projected through look and through style, as we already saw, through costume. 
and this feature too sheds light on his at once national and, and international appeal, his metropolitan status. Through the two decades leading up to his incarceration for treason, Mandela actively courted the media, especially newspapers, to transmit his message in ways that were incredibly far-sighted for the time. Whether he was mobilizing within the Youth League, the ANC Youth League, to gain control of its executive, or organizing days of protest and mourning, whether he was involved on the front line of the ANC defiance campaign, while at the same time under a banning order, or passing his professional examinations as an attorney, or elected ANC deputy president, or charged with high treason, or organizing underground in South Africa and across the African continent, throughout, he was always turned outward to the party and to his public, black but also white, mobilizing his politics by actively dramatizing his moral and political values, his metropolitan values, as he continued to do after his release in 1990. Political vision. At the time that Mandela entered prison, he was a hot-headed and opinionated young leader, given to pedantry, full of derivative ideas. He said so himself. He wrote about this in several of his letters to Winnie Mandela from prison in the early 1970s. He reflected on the kind of politician he had been. He emerged from those years of incarceration, some might say, well, inevitably, 27 and a half years. But he emerged from these years reflective, disciplined, able to force a consensus and yet to draw humanity out of, out of his enemies or his opposition by sheer conviction and persistence. Very determined figure. This prison-forged humanism is probably the strongest plank on which I would say his 21st century reputation must rest his ability to draw relations of reciprocity out of a situation of conflict. On Robben Island, and here you see Mandela pictured, it was a, an image, a photograph that was unknown until the mid-1990s, um, a photograph taken in the late 70s of Mandela gardening on Robben Island. On Robben Island, Mandela was noted for the patience with which he pursued discussion with an interlocutor, relying on his capacity for listening, avoiding judgment in the discussion, supporting the other speaker's position with occasional remarks, concessions, and pushing them gradually to agree to common ground. Across the years, he learned to carry out this kind of discussion even with his prison warders, learning Afrikaans, that was an important concession to bring them on side, and asking about their interests, asking about their families, in ways that he would later adapt, it is clear, for discussions with P.W. Boerter and F.W. de Klerk. Once, when inducting the SWAPO leader Toivo Yatoivo into how argument, how discussion worked on Robben Island, Mandela provocatively advised him to, quote, engage all and sundry in conversation, and then score political points as you go. Particularly difficult debates, again, on Robben Island, as, for example, between the African National Congress and the Pan-African Congress, a much more black, strongly black consciousness grouping, 
These difficult debates, Mandela liked, liked to imagine and to manage literally in 3D as a drama played out in a theatre. This capacity to focus at length and to manage debate deepened over the, over the years as Mandela learned a new sensitivity to others' needs. In effect, learned to listen. As this suggests, Mandela's ethics in discussion undermined the oppositions between Africanness and humanity and between rationality and modernity, um, or irrationality and modernity, on which the colonial and apartheid ideologies were based. I'll say a bit more about this in closing. Yet, if his ability to see the world from the other's point of view forms the ground of his worldwide reputation, the so-called Ubuntu, to see the world from the other, other's point of view, it is paradoxical once again that the ethics of Ubuntu were first developed and publicized not by Mandela, the moral architect of the new South Africa, but by Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Though it was Mandela who came to extend this relational philosophy also to white South Africans writing, the oppressor must be liberated just as surely as the oppressed. For him, an ethics of reciprocity and humanism was interesting only in so far as it could be mobilized for national unity. It's small wonder then that many groups and communities in South Africa do still identify with Nelson Mandela, the national unifier. As a sign of this, the Mandela icon is still, or image, is still everywhere to be seen in the country. On banknotes, on fridge magnets, on memorials, and giant murals on the sides of buildings. Um, this one taken by me two years ago in Johannesburg. As I already suggested, however, in Mandela's case, and certainly after the 1990s, the consolidation of his national reputation went hand in hand with the building of his international renown. Across the Robben Island years, the ANC in exile, and in particular the anti-apartheid movement, actively promoted Mandela's image as a figurehead, and his story offered an important alternative African history to that of enslavement, apartheid, or colonialism, those associations that Africa often has in the, the minds of Western publics. Mandela's was also a compelling story in conflict and in racially divided situations around the world. Again, this story of overcoming, of hope, of reconciliation despite division. Though it was also in many ways beginning to be recognized to be a partial and a compromised story. As I will say again. But it was a strong enough story to provide Mandela with some protection from criticism in his lifetime, even when during his late, in his later presidential years and after, he was attacked by some for moral negligence and economic compromise. Despite an, the number of crises that his presidency confronted, and here this is a, a fairly short list, but a substantial one, despite these crises, the Rwandan genocide which Mandela did not anticipate, but who did? The execution of Ken Sarawiva in Nigeria, HIV-AIDS denialism by the ANC government, and the ANC government in Mandela's years, non-redistributive growth, employment, and so-called redistribution economic policy. Despite these crises, 
Um, the story, Mandela's story on the international stage remained relatively untarnished. John Simpson, the BBC journalist who covered the Mandela years in South Africa, observed on retirement in December 2016 the following, using terms, using a language that I think many others would support. For John Simpson, the most profoundly affecting experience of his career, he wrote, was reporting on the Mandela years. Writing about Mandela as a model of, for peaceful change and of human reform over time had shown the world a new way, he said. One that he, John Simpson, for one, continued to believe in, despite charges to the contrary that at the time and now were closing in on Mandela's reputation. So what of those charges? I've alluded to them. I would like to talk about them now. Some South African historians and politicians have accused Mandela, with some reason, for having sold out black South Africans during the negotiated transition to democracy by giving in to the demands of global white capital, both at home and abroad. The very controversial theorist Slavoj Žižek captures these doubts about Mandela's compromised impact in his trenchant observation, quote, Mandela's universal glory is a sign that he didn't really disturb the global order of power. Close quote. In the realm of politics rather than economics, Zeke's Mdar, in his New York Times obituary in December 2013, observed that there is an increasingly vocal segment of black South Africans that feels that Mandela sold out the liberation struggle to white interests. That he was, he was too busy courting, if you like, international media and international celebrity to really focus on um, the politics of the day. And I'm not going to click back through my slides, but you'll remember that picture of, of Mandela with um, Princess Diana on the front steps of his presidential home, um, which he spoke of as one of the best days of his life, but then also he you know, was... Uh, heard to say that meeting the Spice Girls represented one of the best days of his life. So, you know, there, there, was, there, there was a kind of um, a, a, a courting of, um, of international celebrity by, by Mandela that now, uh, as the country um, is going through economic and political problems, seems um, to show Mandela up as superficial to some extent. Roads Must Fall, I'm sure you've heard of this movement, Roads Must Fall activists emphasize this sell-out aspect of Mandela's character and career. They believe that Mandela's reformist approach ultimately served the material interests and moral exculpation of white South Africans. The poet-activist Koleka Putuma powerfully captures this feeling of betrayal in her poem, 1994, a love poem, when she calls for someone to love her adoringly, even abjectly, the way that white people look at and love Mandela. And I've just brought a, an ext a few extracts from this extremely lacerating poem. Um, I want someone who is going to look at me and love me the way that white people look at and love Mandela. 
Someone who is going to hold onto my memory the way that white people hold onto Mandela's legacy. You don't know love until you have been loved by Mandela. You don't know betrayal until you have been betrayed like Mandela. And this is with one of the many residues of slavery, being loved like Mandela. Even Dare Not Linger, the respectful and authorized sequel to Long Walk to Freedom that I referred to earlier, concedes in its epilogue that, quote-unquote, perceptions matter, and therefore, as the context of Mandela's consummate talent for symbolism was sometimes unclear, his message, his core message, was read by some black South Africans as betrayal. So when he went to drink tea with, um, with the widow um, Betsy Verwoerd, the widow of the so-called architect of apartheid, Hendrik Verwoerd, the feeling is, and it's, it's implied rather than said in um, Dare Not Linger, the feeling is that the context wasn't sufficiently prepared. What, what the, the black public in South Africa saw was their leader shaking hands with and, and sort of you know, cozying up to Mrs. Favort. And this was read by, as betrayal. You don't know betrayal until you have been betrayed like Mandela. That Winnie Mandela, that Winnie Mandela's message was much clearer, meant that her popularity amongst ANC voters, despite the many scandals she faced, remained undimmed. And the obituaries very much captured this when she died in April this year. In short, the two seemingly redeeming concepts associated with Mandela's name, forgiveness and reconciliation and the Rainbow Nation, perhaps have not survived his presidency, at least at home. What then of his global status, if his status at home in the country he led is so eroded? For all his mistakes on home ground, Mandela is, as Sean Johnson, Hedley Twidel and others have written, the man who outgrew his country and who wanders like a ghost or a giant throughout the world forever. He is, as the journalist David Beresford wrote, South Africa's superhero. For response to my question about global status, I turn again to Mandela's moral and political vision, as did John Simpson, and to a predominant aspect of it, that might link his national and his global stories, or his national and his international stories, the power of political generosity and friendship, what might even be called love, a word that J.M. Coetzee, the Nobel Prize-winning South African novelist, once said was in desperately short supply in South Africa during the apartheid years, love. Beyond the contradictions, in the gaps between the speeches, through the long years in prison, Mandela turned himself into a sensitive as well as strategic ethical thinker, as I've tried to suggest. The achievements in negotiation in 1990-94, his loyally commitment to the negotiated constitution, as historian Colin Bundy writes, would not have been possible without his capacity not only for disciplined ethical thought, but for something else, for taking emotional risks, for learning to see the potential for friendship in the other person who is not at first a friend, and for privileging, privileging love over hatred and resentment and bitterness. 
Love is, I concede, a strong word there, but it is one I feel that Mandela's practice of intense identification with the other person calls for. No other word is quite adequate. Ashil Mbembe and Sarah Nuttall, in their 2016 essay, Mandela's Mortality, describe Mandela's approach as a politician, as one of ceaseless transfiguration across his life, a constant recasting of his inner and outer lives, repeatedly projecting his own difference into the other person. This description is interesting and useful, if it also a bit abstract. But that aspect that they touch on of restless production of, and reproduction of difference and then identification does involve the ceaseless transformation of self into the position of the other. And what is this continual breaking down and collapsing together of the self and the other but love? Or more precisely, it requires effort, the work of love. For this work of love, some might still prefer reconciliation, for this work of love, Mandela will, I predict, be remembered for some years yet on the international stage, a period perhaps prolonged because it contrasts so strongly with the hatred and anger that characterise the Trump presidency. On the national stage, who knows? In a country of deepening animosity and division, a little love and a lot of constitution may offer the only way forward. Thank you very much.